Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. As we've turned the page to a new year, many are wondering what will come next and how to navigate it when it does. We invite you to tune into our series, What Now? How Tomorrow Shapes Today, as we explore the words of Jesus in Matthew 24 and 25. Together, we'll learn to look toward the future because what we believe about tomorrow defines the way we'll spend today. Let's discover God's answer to the question on everyone's mind. What now? So uh, over the last several years, we've been single-handedly together, all of us, engaging one of the most interesting time periods and growth in technology that's ever been experienced in the history of the world. You, you know this, you live it every day. And, and one of those aspects of technology that we've all had to learn to navigate over the last several years is social media. Uh, social media is huge. It's booming. And one of the rises in social media has become the rise of social media influence. In fact, I think I read a statistic this week. Don't kill me if I quote this wrong, but if I remember correctly, that social media influencing is a $10 billion industry at this point um, with the amount of people seeking to influence and gain platform and do promote products and all these sorts of things that we see online. And because of the rise and popularity of social media, there's a pressure that we feel, those of you that are on social media, to present yourself in a certain way. That what we see often when we look at our feeds, whether it's Instagram or Twitter or TikTok or whatever it is, is always seems to be this presentation of these perfect pictures, these perfect people, this perfect life, these perfect vacations, all of this, that there's this pressure constantly in our culture to present ourselves in a certain way. And, and I think part of the th reality is that because we see this pressure and because we're inundated around it all the times, we have grown comfortable disconnecting our real lives from our perceived lives. That many of us are comfortable putting out the highlights of our life, but less comfortable with some of the lowlights. We don't always like to put the most real things on there. And I think there's a growing pressure in disconnecting who we are from what we present to people. I was actually reminded of this uh, just a couple weeks ago. I was, I was looking at a blog, and then it led me on another journey to other blogs about uh, the differences between Instagram in reality versus what's often presented, um, which is a fascinating, fun Google search if you're just looking to kill a few hours. Um, but, uh, you know, it's really fascinating when you see some of the differences between what people post and what happens in reality. I actually have a few images that I thought were funny that I, that I found, right? So you see images like this on your social media feed all the time. The perfect cultivated room that looks nice, the beautiful table. But in reality, we know this is really what it looks like most of the time, right? Parents, you know. The perfect family picture, perfect lighting. The perfect family image looks so fun, and in reality, this is what it often looks like more <laughs> of the time. We always love all the fitness shots, that people look so fit and awesome and incredible and doing all these amazing things, but we rarely see the shots that's a few seconds later when she loses her balance. Or this is my favorite, like the baby stationed in the beautiful pot with the flowers. What a gorgeous picture, but when you look at it from the front, but the reality is we're inundated with this all the time and because of that we've grown comfortable and almost sometimes I'm not even sure if we know what, what is real. Who, who is real? What is, what is actually reality or what is just being presented in front of me? Who, who are people really? 
We ask these sort of questions. We've separated our identity from what we present to ourselves. And I think sometimes we have trouble reconciling who we are and what we actually do. I don't think this is just an issue that we see within our culture. I think it's actually and increasingly become an issue even within our faith. You know, I don't know about you, but I was rocked several months ago when I heard the news about Ravi Zacharias. And if you don't know that name, Ravi Zacharias was a leading Christian apologist who for the last couple decades spent his life traveling the world, defending and arguing for the truth and tenets of the Christian faith. Ravi passed away last year, but it was revealed after his death that for many years, almost decades, he had cultivated an entirely secret life of sexual sin and misconduct and abuse towards women. And I'll confess, when I heard the news about Ravi and the report came out that this was true about him, it shook me. I had listened to him. He had had influence on me. And at some point, you start to ask the questions, how can someone disconnect what they claim to believe so far from what they actually do? And do I have a tendency to do that? You see, I think intuitively we know that our actions are meant to reveal our identity. That what we are called to do is meant to align with who we are and what we profess to believe. But sometimes when hypocrisy is put so starkly in our faith, it can cause us to look at our own lives and say, whoa, am I living that disconnected? Am I just presenting the highlights and not dealing with the reality of who I am? I once had a wise mentor tell me that you need to be careful if your public image gets too disconnected from your private image. Because we intuitively know that what we do is meant to reveal who we generally are. And when those things are disconnected, we have a problem. Well, today we encounter a passage where Jesus wants to challenge us in that same reality. To force us to ask the question, is what you do aligned with who you are and what you genuinely claim to believe? Do your actions reveal your identity? If someone was to look at your life day in and day out, not just what you post on social media, what identity would they see? What would it reveal about what you value, love, trust, and center your life on? You know, we've been in this series for the last six weeks it's where we've been studying Jesus' most extended teaching on the future and what is to come in Matthew chapter 24 and 25. And in today's passage, Jesus reaches the pinnacle of that series of teaching. And in the parable or the illustration that he uses of the sheep and the goats, he brings to a climax and a focus what he wants us to really walk away from with what we've been exploring over these last several weeks. And if you haven't been with us, let me just kind of catch you up a little bit on where we've been. In the beginning of Matthew chapter 24, Jesus is with his disciples, and they're acknowledging the temple, which was the massive, glorious center of Jewish worship in Jesus' day. And Jesus makes a prediction that it's going to be destroyed. 
The disciples are kind of taken back by this, and so they ask Jesus after that, well, when is this going to happen? And what's going to be the sign of your coming at the end of the age? They were Jewish, influenced by the teachings of the prophet in the Old Testament, and they knew that if the temple was to be destroyed, then that must mark the beginning of God's kingdom and the arrival of God to both judge and save his people. And so they naturally ask Jesus, well, when's this going to happen? Jesus answers their question in two parts. In the first part of Matthew 24, he essentially deals with the question of when is this going to take place? And he teaches them about the reality of what's going to happen around the destruction of the temple while also preparing them for what's going to happen at the end of time. But in Matthew 24, 36, Jesus makes a shift in his teaching and he begins to focus his disciples on being prepared for his return. And he essentially reminds them There's no sign coming of when I will ultimately return. You don't know when that is going to happen. And because you don't know, you need to be prepared. Jesus reminds them, if if you remember through our study, that when he comes, what he's bringing is judgment. He's coming to establish his kingdom, to judge what is evil and wrong. And so because of this, he gives three parables about readiness and faithfulness that his followers are called to be in light of not knowing exactly when he will return. The first parable that he gives is in relation to two servants. One is faithful, one is not. The next parable he gives is ten bridesmaids. Five are faithful, five are not. Last week, Jesus tells the parable of three servants who are given talents from their master. Two of them are faithful, one isn't. And throughout all of it, Jesus has been reminding us and reminding his followers that you are to live in a prepared and ready way for when I And now in Matthew 25, 31, Jesus reaches the crescendo to not just remind his followers, but all people of what it means and what will happen when he arrives. There's three things from this that I think we need to unpack today and deal with that Jesus wants to point us towards in this illustration. The first thing that we see in this section is Jesus wants to remind us that one day he will gloriously return. Again, he makes reference to what he's been showing this whole time in verse 31 when he says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. Jesus is picking up imagery from the Old Testament, reminding them that what the prophets had predicted is going to come to pass in his ultimate and glorious return. Jesus references predictions like Zechariah 14, where God will come with his heavenly hosts to judge and establish his kingdom. Jesus had actually been teaching his disciples this all along. If you even look back just a few chapters in Matthew 16, 27, Jesus reminds them that the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. What Jesus is speaking to here is what the prophets predicted, that there is an end coming to the world in which God, with his heavenly host, will come to establish his kingdom forever to deal with sin and injustice and brokenness, to judge what is wicked and to establish what is right and good for eternity. Jesus is saying, 
That there's something that's going to happen when that moment comes. When Jesus returns, in his glorious return, he is coming to both judge, and as he shows us in this passage, and to separate. Before him, all people, all nations will be gathered. And then Jesus uses this image that would have been very common to his followers. He pictures himself as the divine shepherd. And as the divine shepherd, his role is to separate the sheep from the goats. Now, the sheep is a common Old Testament image that was used of God's people. And Jesus essentially says he is going to separate God's people out from amongst the mixed crowds that is all nations. In Jesus' day, this would have been very common for shepherds to do. Oftentimes, sheep and goats would be grazed together during the day and allowed into the pasture. And when night came, the shepherds would separate the sheep from the goats. So this was just a common practice. Part of it is that goats are a little bit friskier than sheep. And second of all, they also require a little bit more warmth. So it was natural that while the shepherd was sleeping, they would separate the separate animals and kind of put them into different areas. So Jesus is not focused too much on the practice and We don't read too much into the metaphor. He's using it only as an illustration to say, as a shepherd separates sheep and goats, this is what's going to happen when I return. There is going to be a separation that takes place. The arrival of Jesus means judgment. And because it means judgment, it means separation. That God will divide his people from among the nations of the earth ultimately to invite them into what he has prepared for them. But if a division is coming, if that's what Jesus is pointing towards here, what is the thing that will ultimately determine how he divides the sheep from the goats? Well, that's essentially what Jesus gets to in the heart of the illustration that he uses. Look at verse 34 with me. I'll pick it up in 33 just so we hear the flow. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundations of the world. The sheep are invited in this passage into a place of honor. They are set at the right hand. The right hand in Middle Eastern culture is, it's a clean hand. It's signifies honor. The left hand is used for something else. You can use your own imagination to figure that out or research it later. I'm not going to deal with that today. But the right hand is clean. It's a place of honor. And the sheep are invited into that place. In fact, Jesus says that for these sheep, they're invited not only into blessing, but they inherit a kingdom that's prepared for them from the foundation of the world that they will receive what God has been promising all along, this eternal good kingdom of life and righteousness. But the the goats, we see in verse 41, are set on the left hand of the shepherd, the unclean hand. And they are not invited in. In fact, they are cast out. For the king will say, depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. So there is a separation that takes place. One set in the place of blessing and honor who inherit a kingdom. One set in the place of curse and damnation who inherit 
a place that was designed for God's enemies, the devil and his angels. But what's the difference? What's the thing that shows or divides between these two groups of people? Well, it was essentially how they treated Jesus. For verse 35, it says, For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. The goats did not welcome Jesus. It says, Jesus says to them, For I was hungry, you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. So in one way, they're separated by the way they treat Jesus, but there's a surprise twist, as there always is in Jesus' story. I don't know how he always can tell such a good story with a surprise twist, right? He's a master at this. Because suddenly both groups in the parable are confused. The righteous, they're not confused that they're separated, they're confused at the reason they're separated. So the righteous respond in 37, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? Right, the goats ask a similar question in their surprise in verse 44. Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? They're like confused. Like, wait, Jesus, I think I'd notice, like, if you were there. So, so how, how did we miss this? Like, how did we miss that, that we ministered to you or we didn't minister to you? And here's the clincher phrase that we need to unpack this morning. In verse 40, And the king will answer to them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to the one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. He echoes that phrase in 45 to the goats, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. So it seems that the goats and the sheep are divided based on the way they respond to who Jesus says are the least of my brothers. Now, who is this? That's the natural question we have to ask. If this is the thing that divides, how they related to this group of people that Jesus is describing, who are these people? Who are the least of my brothers? Now, many people will look at this passage in the kind of natural gut reaction interpretation is, well, Jesus must just be referencing the poor. When he says the least of these, that's who it must be, the least of these, the people that are among us, those that live in poverty. But we always want to be wise when we study Scripture to interpret Scripture with Scripture, to say, is that what Jesus is referencing, or does Jesus have a a particular group of people in mind? And I would actually argue that he does He has a very particular group of people in mind. And he's actually already defined earlier in the gospel who the least of my brothers are. We find these two phrases in two other teachings of Jesus. The first one we find actually in Matthew 10, chapter 40. You can turn there with me. It's just a couple pages back because I want you to see the connection that comes. In Matthew 10, Jesus is preparing to send his disciples out on mission to the villages in and around Judea to proclaim the reality of his kingdom. And at the end of Jesus preparing them, he says this to his disciples. He says, whoever receives you, in Matthew 10, 40, whoever receives you receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet, because he is a prophet, will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person, because he is a righteous person, will receive a righteous person's reward. 
And here's the key phrase. And whoever gives one of these little ones, you should mark that in your Bible, even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will be by no means, he will by no means lose his reward. The phrase Jesus uses here of little ones, the phrase least of these is simply in the original language, the superlative of that phrase, little ones. You remember what a superlative is? It's an adjective taken to its fullest. So you could say something is good or better or it's best. Best is the superlative. It's taken to the farthest degree. The phrase that Jesus says least of these is merely his superlative of the word little ones, which Jesus defines as his disciples. In fact, every time Jesus references little ones in the Gospel of Matthew, it always refers to his disciples, to Christians. And Jesus actually further defines this in the passage when he talks about who his family is, who his brothers and sisters are. For in Matthew 12, 46, the story comes that Jesus is teaching and his brother and mother arrive essentially to interrupt his teaching and they come and tell him, hey, your family's here. And Jesus responds to this moment by saying, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand towards his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. So, when you then get to Matthew 25 and who Jesus says that ultimately the sheep and goats are divided on who this group of people, the least of my brothers we realize that what Jesus is pointing towards is how people respond to the least of his disciples. Specifically, as he points out in the passage, his disciples that experience suffering from poverty, hunger, estrangement, nakedness, imprisonment, illness. It seems as if what Jesus is saying is how we treat the Christian poor, his brothers and sisters who suffer, and his itinerant ministers who carry his gospel forward, well, this is why one group is welcomed into the kingdom and one group isn't. The sheep received and responded to this group of people. The goats did not. So why are they surprised then? Well, part of the reason they're surprised is because they overlooked these everyday actions. The sheep merely responded to their brothers and sisters who were in need and suffering because that's what you do as a follower of Jesus. It didn't seem unnatural for them to to simply care for those in need within Jesus' community. And the goats, well, they're just as surprised because why would we care about them? Who cares about poor Christians? They're all crazy anyway. Yet Jesus says, it's those people who are identified with me. You see, they're surprised because the everyday reality of their life displayed what they actually believed. What Jesus is getting at here and what he's pointing towards is that our actions reveal our identity. And because our actions reveal our identity, faith, true faith in Jesus, results in the fruit of his kingdom in our lives. It results in works of righteousness, specifically in this passage, how we relate to our brothers and sisters who are in suffering, who are impoverished, who are rejected by the world. You might say it this way, faith without works is worthless. 
And Jesus' mind, if there is faith without works, then it is not faith. Because works reveal our faith. They show what we're really about. And because that, they show who's part of Jesus' people and who isn't. What we do shows ultimately what we believe. And it's this that God separates them on. You might, you might think of it this way. Imagine uh, with me, and this might be easier for some of you than others, imagine with me that by uh, a luck uh, or chance or whatever reason, you win two tickets to Comic-Con in San Diego. Now, I know some of you are like, this dude is the nerdiest person I ever heard. Like, where are we going with this? But for some of you that enjoy superheroes and sci-fi like I do, just imagine with me, and the rest of you just hang with me, right? Imagine you win two tickets to Comic-Con in San Diego, which is like the premier nerd event in the world. And you decide, you know you're going for sure. You're like, I'm going, I'm in, I'm a thousand percent, I'm all about this. But you have a couple buddies that, that express, hey, we'd love to go with you. We'd love to use that extra ticket. And you're kind of torn. Like, who am I going to take? Who, who's, who am I going to take to experience this incredible privilege that I get in my life? And so you decide, all right, you know what? I, I want to take the person who would most relish this the most, who like genuinely loves this sort of stuff. So you decide, you know what, I'm just going to invite him over and we're going to have a conversation and then afterwards I'm going I'm to decide. So they come over to your house and lo and behold, they both show up in costume. Just like kind of wanting to display like, hey, I really want this, right? And you begin to have a conversation with them and you're like, hey, t- tell, me, tell me like what your favorite Avengers movie is. Like, we'll just start easy. And one of them's like, uh, well, I've seen them all four times, right? And I can't pick a favorite because they're all so good. And the other one's like, uh, well, I watched the first Iron Man. Does that count? You're like, okay, strike one. <laughs> then you're like, okay, maybe the movies aren't your thing. Like, tell me about your com- like comic books. Like, do you like comic books? And one of them's like, oh, yeah, every day since I was a kid, I know these guys, right? Every day since I was a kid, I go to the comic book store, and I get the newest release every week. I'm so excited. I can't wait to read it. And the other one's like, comic books? No, I've never read those. And then, okay, you're like, okay, softball, like Star Trek or Star Wars, like pick one. And the one's like, neither, I don't like either. Right, like at some point you're going to look at him and be like, you're not going to Comic-Con. <laughs> like just because you're wearing a costume, you've shown that you don't actually care about this stuff. But you, you that care, you that love, you're that about this, right? It wasn't that they did something impressive in the moment. It was that their everyday actions reveal to you what they actually value and love. That's what Jesus is trying to drive at. He's not trying to get you to say like, okay, I got to just do a few more things, a few more good things in my life. Maybe just add a little bit more charity, give a little bit more money away, serve at the kitchen on Thanksgiving, do what I need to do. What he's trying to say is the everyday way that you treat impoverished Christians displays whether or not you actually love him or not. It reveals where your heart is and where your faith is. You see, Jesus isn't dividing them and just saying, well, some of you did good things and some of you did bad things. What he's saying is, no, your heart, what you did reveals your heart was never with me. Faith that produces no fruit of the kingdom of God, that shows no compassion and care for our brothers and sisters in Jesus' mind is not faith. It's falsehood. It's dressing up in the costume with no real heart and love for him. Jesus' brother would say it this way in the book of James. He would say, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? 
If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things they need for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. You see, genuine faith results in a life lived for God's kingdom, in producing the fruit We see the illustration James uses. It's ridiculous if someone you knew came to you poorly clothed and in need and you just said like, go in peace. Like, well, that doesn't seem very loving. Yet, how easy it is to claim faith, to say like, yeah, I'm on team Jesus. But when you actually evaluate the everyday stuff of life, the way you live on a regular basis, you don't really see much Jesus there. There isn't a whole lot of kingdom in that space. We said it before, but Jesus drives it home again. You can present yourself as a Christian. You can have the Instagram photos, but your everyday life, the truth of your heart, the way you live day in and day out reveals whether or not that faith is genuine. If you claim you have faith, but you don't have works, then at some point you don't have faith. It's challenging and startling, but it's also gracious. See, what Jesus reminds us in this is that you and I, we have the opportunity in our lives on a regular basis to minister to Jesus. He's not messing around when he says, like, the way you treat my people, especially the ones in suffering, That's what you do to me. Think of that privilege. You, in your life today, by a faith that results in genuine care and concern for our brothers and sisters who experience suffering, injustice, rejection, poverty, the way you minister to them gives you an opportunity to minister to Jesus himself. How could we not avail ourselves of that privilege? How could we not seek to have the sort of faith that produces work, that produces the fruit of the kingdom? So the question we have to ask is, if we looked at your life, would it display faith? Would your actions reveal your identity? And the reason this is so important is because Jesus is not just giving this to us so you can have a nice little better life. We're dealing with the stuff of eternity. That's why he ends in verse 46. Again, I'll read 45, the goats. Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. See, at the end of the day, your faith determines your destination. In Jesus' mind, when he returns, there are only two types of people. And it's not those who love Neil Diamond and those who don't. Contrary to what about Bob? Everyone over 40 got that. Everyone over 30 just thought, like, under 40 just thought I was crazy. But you can look it up. But in Jesus' mind, there's only two types of people. It's those who have faith, and a faith that results in the fruit of the kingdom in their life and those who don't. And Jesus is clear here that those who do not have faith will be divided out. 
They will be put in the place of Jesus' enemies. And in many ways, what Matthew does here is bring to culmination a theme that he's been driving at throughout the gospel. If you actually go back and read through all of Jesus' major teachings, they all, towards the end, deal with the issue of division. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says there's two types of people, those that build their house on the rock and those that build their house on the sand. At the end of his teaching on the parables in Matthew 13, Jesus says there's two types of fish, those that are bad and are thrown away, those that are good. In Matthew 18, Jesus reminds us there's two types of servants, those who experience God's mercy and live with mercy towards others and those who experience the mercy of God and turn away in judgment towards others. And that here in this moment, he reminds us that when he returns, it is the point of division and there will be those that are with him and those that are with his enemies. There is no middle ground in Jesus' mind. There's no category that says like, well, I lived a mostly good life. I did some good things. Yeah, I kind of messed up a few times, but like, God's okay with that. No. In the categories of Scripture, we are all sinful. All have fallen short. All have rebelled. All have turned away from God. And it is only those who have received God's gift of grace in Jesus Christ. They don't earn it. They don't do it. They simply receive and realize that the only way their sin can be atoned for and covered is through the death of Jesus Christ. It's through the mighty cross that forgives us and sets us free and who've experienced the power of his resurrection and are filled with his spirit. There are those that experience that faith, that put their faith in Jesus. And then there are God's enemies. And if your faith is not in Jesus, God does not view you in a middle category. He views you as an enemy. And when he returns, he will deal with his enemies. That's the reality of the return of Christ. When he comes, he comes to rid the world of sin. He comes to rid the world of injustice. He comes to rid the world of unrighteousness. Because it is the only way he can establish his full and final kingdom where there is no more death, there is no more sin, there is no more injustice, there is no more unrighteousness. It is only those that are found in faith, united with his perfect son, that will experience the blessed kingdom. It sounds harsh, but it's actually loving. You can think of it this way. Imagine that you, um, imagine you decided that you were going to plant a, like a grove of apple trees in your backyard. So you, you want some apple. Who doesn't love Michigan apples, right? And you're like, I just wanted some of those where I can like walk out in my backyard, pick one off, eat it right then. So you go out, you plant, you plan your little orchard. You're just going to have several trees around. You kind of plant it out, out there. And, you know, you do the work. You get the soil. You cultivate the ground. You do everything that you need to do. And these trees begin to grow. And then the time comes for them to start producing fruit. And you notice that several of your trees are producing fruit, but Several of your trees aren't. So you're like, okay, put a little more work in, cultivate the ground, provide the resources they need, kind of do what they are. And, and the next year, they kind of produce some fruit, but it's bad fruit. It's like that nasty, those little apples, like bitter taste. You're like, something's off here. So you go back again and again and again. And you try to work and work over years. But then you realize that these trees, man, they're just, they're dead. They're disinfected. And because of that, they're starting to invite all sort of bugs and all sort of things to come and live in your orchard. And they're actually starting to have an effect on the other trees because these dead trees are inviting in the very disease that could harm your orchard. What would you do as a loving gardener for your orchard at that point? You'd remove the trees, right? You've done everything you can. You've given them every opportunity to produce fruit. 
But if you really wanted to see a flourishing orchard, you remove the trees. You see, that's the reality of what happens when Jesus shows up. God's plan from the beginning of the world is to establish a world where justice and life and righteousness is the way things are. Where there is no death. Where there is no disease. And what he wants to do is give every opportunity he can for his for the people that have turned their back and rebelled and sided with his enemies to say, hey, come, come join my kingdom. Come produce the fruit of my kingdom. Come put your faith in me. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to work hard enough. You don't have to just do a few more good things. All you have to do is trust in my son who I'm going to send to save you. The Bible says God is patient towards us, not wishing that any should perish. His heart constantly is to say, come to me. But at some point, if he loves his world and he loves his people, he's got to deal with the disease. He's got to cut off the sin. He's got to defeat his enemies. And the reality is when that day comes, you're either with God in Jesus or you're with his enemies. You either experience him inviting you into a blessed kingdom prepared before the foundations of the world for his people or you experience his cursing. You experience the place that's prepared for his enemies. You experience hell and eternal damnation forever. See, Jesus isn't messing around. He's talking about where we spend eternity here. And he wants all of us to remember, when I show up, there won't be a second chance at that point. It's appointed for all of us, Hebrews says, for all of us to die, and then comes judgment. But the good news of the gospel is that God invites you. He invites you in this moment, right now, today, to experience his love and grace and forgiveness. God does not want to cast you off with his enemies. He wants to invite you into his kingdom. That's why he sent his son. That's why he did everything he can. And all we have to do is humble ourselves to receive his gift. done that? Have you put your faith in Jesus? And are you seeing the fruit and the evidence in your life of him? See, what Jesus is encouraging us here in this passage is, listen, unlike trees, you have the opportunity to taste your own fruit. You have the opportunity to look at your life and say, do I see the evidence of the kingdom in my life? Do I see Jesus changing me? Not perfectly, We're all in a process of God growing and moving, just like a tree that's growing. It takes time. But do you see that fruit begin to bear? Are you different from the person you were? Do you love his people? Especially the least. You see, it's easy to love a God of power and strength. It's easy to celebrate a savior that we fashion in our own image. I mean, isn't that what we remember on today? That Jesus rode into Jerusalem, herald by people as the king. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Wave your palm branches. Lay down your tree or lay down your coats. Yet it would be five days later that they would be the same crowd that would yell crucify him. 
because to receive Jesus is to receive the least. Because the truth of the gospel reminds us that Jesus, in his grace, became the least of these for the least of these. You see, if you can't love the least of these, if you can't love the sick, the impoverished, the hurting, your brothers and sisters then suffer, how can you ever love a Savior that was naked on a cross, that thirsted on the cross, who hung in your place, who became the lowest of lows so that you could be lifted up? If you can't love the least, how could you ever love a king like that? But that's exactly the Savior who became the least so that you could have the opportunity to experience the most. And all you have to do today is put your faith in Jesus Christ and allow him to bear the fruit he wants to bear in your life. And so we just want to enter into a time just for a moment to give you a spot to reflect and then we're going to sing. Because the hope of this passage is not to condemn you hope of this passage is to call you to be honest with yourself and say, what does the fruit of my life really show about what I believe? And if it shows a lack of faith, then God just invites you to faith today. To repent, to turn from your sin and to trust in Jesus. He's here ready to forgive. His arms are open inviting you today to put your faith and trust in him so that one day you can experience the king who looks at you and says, blessed are you. Inherit the kingdom that was prepared for you from the foundations of the world. I pray that would be true for you today. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, I'm thankful that you and your kindness provided a way for us to experience your salvation now. God, that we don't have to, to wait until that day when you come and you divide, but that we, right now today, we can know where we stand with you. That you provide not only the faith we need, you bear the fruit in us, you provide the assurance that we need. God, we don't deserve that. I know and recognize, even in this moment, my own sinfulness the times I don't love the way you call me to love, the times in my pride I don't turn my eye and my ear towards the least. But I'm also grateful that you knew that would be the case. And so you sent your son to die on my behalf, to take my punishment so that I can experience new life, forgiveness, joy, and I can begin to bear the fruit of your kingdom now. So thank you for that. Lord, I pray over those that are hearing me, whether in this room or online right now. I pray for those of, that don't know you. Lord Jesus, bring them to that place of repentance where they turn from their sin and turn towards you. God, for those that maybe have been just playing the religious game, I pray as they look at the fruit of their lives, they would see Oh, this isn't what faith is. And they would hear afresh your call to faith and forgiveness this morning. God, for those that have put your faith in you, 
align us again. Continue to prune us to bear the fruit of your kingdom, I pray. Even now, would your spirit move as we celebrate your invitation, your forgiveness, your grace. We love you. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself to us today.